Good morning. My name is Art Cash, and I'm excited to talk to you about Acts 5 today. It'll be in verses 34 through 42. So at this very moment, while you're turning there, we have a missionary in our body who works for a ministry in the Middle East and provides medical care to those in need. And I can't name the person or the ministry because this sermon will likely be on a podcast or live stream as we're doing now. But if you want to talk to me about who this is later, I'm happy to talk to you about this. We're not mentioning their name or the ministry for their own safety because the security services in this country recently told the director of this ministry, we love the service that you're providing. We love the care that you're giving people in our country, but you have to stop talking about Jesus. This has to stop. If you want us to renew your visa, you need to stop talking about Jesus. So the response from the director's response that we'll see in our passage today he rejoiced to suffer dishonor and threats for the name of Jesus. And due to this believer's spirit-given tenacity, God uses the situation for his glory. This director was given an audience with one of the highest members of security services in the country. And that guy's asking this director, what, what's your deal? What's your problem? And that director was able to explain to this guy high up in security services the gospel of Jesus Christ. So because of the persecution that was taking place, the gospel gets to go to a place it hadn't been before. So this account, it's, it's only one example of why our main point this morning is true. It's this, it's, it's better to be dishonored for the name of Jesus than it is to be honored by everyone else for any other reason. So I, I want you to see this. As we turn to our passage in Acts 5, you'll remember last week was kind of a cliffhanger, right? We left off in verse 33. Peter and the apostles, they're, they're preaching the gospel. They're saying, we cannot obey you. We must obey God. We've got to keep talking about Jesus. But when that happens in Acts 2, we have people that are cut to the heart and ready to repent. When this happens here, to the Sanhedrin, they're cut and they're ready to kill. So let's, let's back up to verse 29 so we can see this. 529. But Peter and the apostle answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Father, help us this morning to see the boldness of these men, their suffering, and how it is partnering in the suffering of your son, that that we follow in the apostles' footsteps as they followed in the footsteps of Jesus, not just as an example, but as our sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we'll work through the passage like this. We'll look at the common sense of Gamaliel in the first few verses. We'll look at the persecution that happened to the apostles and what that might mean to us. And the apostles, how they respond in verses 41 through 42. So again, when we we think about who Peter and and the apostles are talking to here, it's not just men of Israel. It's it's the council. It's, It's the Sanhedrin. It is the religious elite in Israel. Instead of repentance, they rage. And then in verse 34, we have Gamaliel stand up before anybody can be killed. This, this Gamaliel, he's a Pharisee. He intercedes. He's a teacher of the law. He's held in honor by all the people. He gives orders for the apostles to be put outside for a little while. Right there's wisdom and just bringing down the temperature in the room. Let's put the object of our rage outside for just a minute so we can reason together. You may recognize Gamaliel. He was, he was the rabbi who trained and discipled Paul in all matters of the law. A Jewish historian Josephus, he describes Gamaliel as a Pharisee with a reputation for scholarship, for wisdom, for moderation. And we see that wisdom on display early Again, as he removes the apostles from the room. In verse 35, Gamaliel says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. More wisdom. In essence, he's saying, think before you act. I can apply that to my own life immediately. The boneheaded decisions that I make that could have been curtailed, changed a little bit if I had just thought before I acted. It's common sense. It's wisdom. Then Gamaliel, he proceeds to give the council a brief history lesson. He's like, listen, you remember a while back, this, this Thetis guy, he rose up. He thought he was somebody. He was nobody. They even got 400 people to follow him. It didn't work out. He came to nothing. Then you had Judas. Same thing. You know how this ends, guys. Judas raises up. He becomes nothing. Even though some people followed him, his followers are scattered. He perished. It came to nothing. Details and the origins of these men and their rebellions, it's not as important as as the point that Gamaliel is driving to in 38 and 39. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, there's, there's, that's good. That's reasonable. There's even theologically correct advice here. We, we know that God is sovereign. 
If this new religious uprising is merely for man, it will fail. History and Scripture tell us that. If it's from God, nobody can stop it. So, it should encourage us that Gamaliel was right. This man, Jesus, he he didn't just claim to be somebody. Jesus claimed to be God. And for that, they, they crucified him on a Roman cross. He was killed and his followers scattered. But God raised Jesus from the dead. What looked as if it had failed and come to nothing actually became the most important thing in all of history. Here, Christianity is not overthrown, but thriving 2,000 years later. So, on the one hand, Gamaliel, he's right when he urged caution in what they were about to do to the apostles in verse 35. But his advice is incomplete. It doesn't go far enough. Look at what Gamaliel says in verse 38. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. So he's an expert in the law. He's speaking to other experts in the law. You know that Gamaliel was either there or he heard about Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. You set your hope on Moses, but if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. John 5, 39 and 46. So if it's incomplete, what what should this expert in the law have said to other experts in the law? Leave these men alone? Keep away from these men? No, that's terrible advice. It's terrible The religious leaders should have listened to the apostles, searched the scriptures, sought the Lord in prayer, and weighed the evidence of the signs and wonders being done in the name of Jesus. Look back at verse 16. The people also gathered around Jerusalem, bringing the sick. All of them were healed. That that didn't escape the notice of the council and the Sanhedrin. They had to know. They had to see something was going on. There was way too much to go and do to just wait and see. But rather than just pointing out Gamaliel where he's wrong, we can learn from him. First, we see that Gamaliel, he, he misuses his theology. He uses his doctrine as an excuse for sin. We know that in the long view, Gamaliel's right. If God's doing something, it can't be overthrown. But we never use a long-term truth to excuse evil in the here and now. Gamaliel takes God's sovereignty and uses it as an excuse to be passive, to wait and see what will happen. But given who he is and what he knows, this is clearly a sin of omission. James 4.17 tells us it's sin to know what the right thing is to do and to fail to do it. We can see it further by just contrasting Gamaliel's wait-and-see approach with the apostles' go-and-tell approach. Both groups, they hold to God's sovereignty. They hold to God's providence. One uses it as an excuse for sin, and one uses it to embolden their obedience. 
Second, we learn that while patience is a virtue, passivity is a vice. If we say this biblically, patience is a fruit of the Spirit, but passivity is a sin. In our passage, passivity masquerading as godly patience is evil. This shows up in our own lives when we are passive about our own sin. Oh, we could be so aggressive towards the sin of others. That's deadly. So to ask this as clearly as I can, where is passivity masquerading as patience in your life? Where do you use God's sovereignty as an excuse for not dealing with your own sin? Where do you know what the right thing, the next right thing is to do and you're not doing it? This is a sin by omission and you need to confess and repent. Thankfully, we worship a Lord, a Savior, who always did the right thing. And we can trust in Him for forgiveness. When the next step of obedience is clearly communicated in the Word of God, there's never an excuse for us to be passive. So, even though this advice of Gamaliel, it's, it's incomplete, God still uses it. God uses incomplete advice all the time through earthly leaders. He uses this word to the Sanhedrin to spare the lives of his apostles. But as we'll see, when obeying God displeases earthly rulers, there will be a cost. So we need to see what that is in in verse 40. Let's see their persecution here. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So the council listens to Gamaliel, kind of. I mean, they, they, they beat the apostles and charged them again not to teach in the name of Jesus. That's persecution. To use power, whether legal authority or by physical strength, to silence the religious beliefs of another is persecution. But what I want you to see in this text is how it's escalating. Okay, so if you, if you look back to, to verse 18, even 28, it was, it was a command Don't speak in the name of Jesus. Now the council reiterates this command, and this is the full legal weight of their authority amongst the people. This time it escalates because they beat the apostles. The Greek word for beat means flayed or scourged, so we might just think they were were pulling their beard or hitting them in the face with, with fists. That's not it. They were likely given 40 lashes, save one with a leather whip, that was meant to bring intense pain, either huge welts across the skin or opening the skin. So what's happening to the apostles is is what happens when those in power hate the truth, can't win the argument based on the merits of their own position. Do you see what's happening? The council can't win the argument, so they attempt to silence it. The council can't silence the argument So they resort to force to try and stop it. You can look around and see this same dynamic in action from the online or schoolyard bully to totalitarian regimes like North Korea and China. But we don't live in first century Israel or modern day China. We're not under direct persecution. So how does this apply to us now? Well, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that we are already experiencing 
indirect persecution. And as we see from the text, persecution escalates. As we also see with the apostles, preparing for persecution now will help us respond with joy and obedience to God later. Here, just to be completely candid with you, this is where I feel the most tension, where I need the most godly wisdom. The, the apostles, they're, they're not enduring persecution to protect their personal freedom or a comfortable way of life, but for proclaiming the name of the one who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. The apostles are clearly suffering in order to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, this this is what I mean by the tension. Because in in some ways, it would be so much easier for us if some baton-waving, jack-booted, helmeted goon got in your face and said, deny Jesus, and you would look at them and say, no, no way. And then you would take the punishment. Something that was so clear and so direct. A clear challenge and a clear response, but it's not that clear for us. For me, at least, growing up in the land of the free, sermons about persecution, they seem far removed. Or if the preacher tried to make it relevant to Christians in America, it just seemed politically motivated or a forced context where the punchline was, yeah, we're not being strung up like some people in some countries, but are you ready to be made fun of for Jesus? I stand before you as an elder in this church, committed to this body, And I can say to you, I no longer feel that way. I believe in my lifetime, definitely in my children's lifetime, Christians in America are going to experience persecution in ways that we haven't experienced before. So one of our roles as elders is to say, we see it. And if we see it, we need you to see it. We need you to be prepared to suffer shame and dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but the privilege of suffering for His sake, according to Philippians 1.29. And not just to suffer, but like we see with the apostles, to rejoice and remain obedient to God while we suffer. So what will this persecution look like? Right now, the challenge is subtle, but it's already here. We're in the midst of what Rod Dreher in his book, Live Not By Lies, calls soft totalitarianism. Old totalitarianism conquered societies through fear of pain. The new soft totalitarianism will conquer primarily through manipulating people's love of pleasure and fear of discomfort. Many of us are ready to be beaten and to even die for the truth of Christ. But are we ready to give up our comforts and conveniences for Him? We need the Holy Spirit to check our hearts and motives that when we resist, that when we are persecuted, it would not be merely for comfort, for capitalism, the pursuit of happiness or the American dream, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where we're at a disadvantage. We in the West, we're so steeped in our prosperity, we don't even know what persecution looks like. I'm not ready. I I get upset. I can't handle it. My Wi-Fi goes out. This is to 
our disadvantage. We don't understand persecution. So we need to be wise and shrewd about what form persecution will likely to take and, and where will it come from. Persecution won't come as a direct assault on the gospel and the church at first, but rather we've watched the attack chip and chop away at the places where God's truth directly confronts the depravity of the world. We could, we could make Gamaliel's mistake here. We could say, until they attack the gospel directly, I'm not doing anything. Because if God's for it, it can't be overthrown. We can't be passive and wait to defend the truth until there's a direct assault upon the gospel itself. Any, any of you that have a, a wooden structure, wooden, wooden home, wooden deck, wooden cabin, when you notice termites, you, you don't wait until they have chewed away everything to the foundation to act. There is too much for us to go and do to wait and see. So who, who knew that this, that this would be the place, God's truth confronting the depravity of the world? And again, I'm, I'm not talking about us hammering unbelievers with the law. Hey, you unbelievers, you're acting like unbelievers. Stop. That's not helpful. I'm still talking about taking the gospel to meet those places of depravity in the world. It's still about Jesus Christ. Who knew that this, this hill that we may not be forced to die on, but rather decide on, would be God's specific revelation in His Word about the nature of the people that He created. We're sinners, regardless of skin color, regardless of wealth, that all of life is sacred, and he, that He created us male and female. You are likely to first notice persecution in the workplace. Some of you are already experiencing the pressure to participate in training seminars that, that cover everything from gender identity to proving to you that white privilege exists in every aspect imaginable. Now that last line, that white privilege exists to you in every aspect imaginable, that is a direct title of a class uh, of a person in our body right now that they have to take. The training that's being introduced and merely encouraged at this point will at some point be enforced. Again, I'm, I'm talking to you about what, what I'm seeing that I need you to see. We're so steeped in prosperity, there's that temptation to be like, it's not that bad. I, I can deal with that. I can, I, can, I can compromise there. If the Equality Act is passed soon, and there's no reason to think that it won't be, there's no provision in that act for a, a religious conscience clause. This means that Christians who are medical providers, nonprofits, charities, private businesses, and even potentially parents will have a choice to make. Either embrace a lie or hold fast to the truth and the cost that will come with that decision. Now, this may seem theoretical. It's not. I'm thinking about my wife and a recent patient that, that she saw, young lady, teenager, already wearing a binder saying, the only way I can be happy is if I get hormones to be a man. Right now, my wife has the freedom, according to her conscience, to say, I don't think that's the wisest choice for you. 
Can I pray for you? Can I share the, the gospel with you? Can I tell you a better story about who you are? But what's coming is legally, she will no longer have that right. So she'll have a choice to make. We need to think and pray now for the decisions we will have to make then. You may be ready to be shamed for following Jesus, but are you ready to be denied a promotion because you agree with God's word and biology that there are only two genders? So persecution here and now, it won't look the same as it did for the apostles, but we can still prepare the way that they did. How do we prepare? We equip the saints. Some of us have, have been taught to defend the faith. But our apologetics, our arguments for the faith, they're, they're equipped to deal with moral relativism, that kind of squishy, like, you do your truth, I'll do mine. What's good for you? That's fine. You do your thing, I'll do mine. We know kind of where to go with that. We can, we can coke them, right? We've been through some, uh, some tactics, so we can say, what do you mean by truth? All right, and then see what happens. We kind of know how to respond to that. But I'm concerned we're, we're less equipped to face a new progressive religion that marches forward with as much moral certainty as that of any religious zealot. That's the difference. That's what we're facing at this point. So the answer is not to be zealous in the opposite political direction and place our hope in a man or a party. We've seen how that goes. Political idolatry in either direction. It's still idolatry. So what do we do? Look back at our passage. What, what is the nature of these people that are opposing the apostles? Misplaced zealotry defines the Sanhedrin. The council was absolutely convinced they were on the right side of God, and they operated in full-bore, self-righteous enthusiasm as a result. Today, we have to be equipped to engage with those who believe fervently that they are on the right side of history and that the greatest moral good is complete sexual freedom. That's why I'm thankful. I'm thankful this church offers equipping like the recent training weekend on social justice and critical race theory where we contrasted the difference in how the world views justice, power, equity, equality, and race with how Scripture views it. We must continue to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. And together, we continue to build the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 12. Not only do we equip one another, we equip our families, we equip our children. So I used to play a game with the kids called Spot the Lie. As they've gotten older... It's kind of morphed into a bit longer game called, what does this TV show, book, podcast, movie, or author really want you to believe? Now, I don't ask them to remember the name of the game. I just ask them to play it with me, okay? That what it looks like usually is, pause the TV, what theme are we being told right now? What does this author want us to believe? How can you tell? Love that game. It's not a game. It's now going to be life. Parents, we have to teach our children that media, culture, and academia are constantly discipling us in a particular worldview. We need to equip our families to be aware of that and how to identify what belief is being communicated. 
Perhaps the, the best way that you can prepare your family for suffering and persecution is to give them an accurate picture of God. Teach them that God is more than the one that you pray to for, for safety and happiness. It, if we're honest, any of us that are, that are parents, we've heard the, the prayers of our, of our young kids. Please help us to have a good day. Please keep us safe. And please help me do well on the tests and have fun with my friends. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. It's just not enough. We, we need to teach them that Jesus is the Messiah who gives them the gift of repentance and offers to forgive their sins. That their biggest problem is not the test coming up. Their biggest problem is sin. And that we worship a God who provides them hope in that place. We teach them that he is the risen Christ, the anointed one of God. That he is our exalted savior and leader, no matter what's going on in our lives, in, in our country, that he reigns. We need to teach our children that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And we need to teach them that he is the warrior of Revelation 19. That the same ferocity that he has in defending and loving his people, that holy ferocity, at one point, with this name, the one called Faithful and True, the one called the Word of God, the one named King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our families need to know that the same holiness that led Christ to die on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, that same holiness will one day lead Christ to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on Satan and on all who despise His grace and His compassion. Our Christ reigns. Our kids need to know it. Our families need the full counsel of the Lord found in His Word so that they can respond with joy and obedience to God when persecution comes. So the council beats, they threaten, they shame, and they dishonor the apostles in order to shut down the name of Jesus Persecution did not work then. It does not work now. How do we know? We can look at the apostles' response in 5, 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. There's two ways they respond. I want you to see they rejoice and they persist. They persist in their obedience to God. If I'm honest, and some preaching, I need to be honest. The question that comes up in my heart right here is, if I'm in their situation, how would I respond? Maybe you're thinking that. How would you respond? Not only that, how do they respond? with Rejoicing, and, and as we know that persecution is going to escalate, how do they continue responding with joy? And obedience. How? One answer is found in verse 41. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So here's a culture that's completely foreign to us, brothers and sisters. It's, we're in a meritocracy. Uh, we have been, where you work hard and you get what you deserve. You can earn whatever. In this honor and shame culture, we could miss this. Luke's play on words. He, he's contrasting 
Gamaliel and the apostles. This, this contrast is intentional. We're meant to see the irony that Gamaliel, the one who is respected and honored by all the people, is shamefully blind to who Jesus really is. And the, and the iron, ironic twist then is the apostles who are jailed and beaten are the ones actually worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Worthy and honor are supposed to get, go together, not worthy and dishonor. So it's, we need to remember it is better to be dishonored for the name of Jesus than it is to be honored by everyone else for any other reason. We can see this contrast right here in our text 2,000 years later, removed from these events. But I still want to know, how, how did the apostles respond this way, this joy and obedience in that moment? As the insults flew, you're not really a Jew. You, you're no longer a son of, of Abraham. You don't belong to this covenant community anymore. As the insults flew and as the whips flew, how did they have joy? Suffering leads to joy when you know that the reason you're being dishonored is because you worship the only one who is actually worthy of honor. When your eyes are set on Jesus, the one that who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the one who saw the shame of the cross and thought nothing of it, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The apostles had joy because this truth, it's, it's anchored. I don't even have the right words. It's bolted. It's drilled. It, it's it's in them, their hearts and minds. They're not ashamed of the gospel because they know it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The apostles rejoice because they're being strengthened by the Holy Spirit and they were prepared for persecution by Jesus. He prepared them for this day and for darker days to come. Look at Matthew 10. It'll be on the screen. This is how he prepared them. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. How do they have joy? Jesus personally prepared them. But what about us? Persecution looks different. Is Jesus different? No, we worship the same Christ. Deep down, we think, when I'm finally put on the spot, will I fail God? We're looking to ourselves instead of Him. What do we do? We go back to Matthew 10. The very next verse is what we do. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. These words are for the apostles, but the principles are for us. We worship the same Christ. We're anchored to the same Jesus. We have the breathed Word of God. We have the same Holy Spirit that strengthened them then will strengthen you now. Holy Spirit-empowered courage is how we will respond 
when the time comes to be dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ. So the apostles rejoice over the dishonor. And what they did next is, is remarkable. They, they persist in obeying God. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Their obedience is remarkable because it's, it's tenacious. And I love this aspect. Every day, all the time. In the temple and from house to house, all the time in every place. They did not cease godly stubbornness, teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, obeying God. So any of you brothers and sisters out there right now that receive criticism from time to time for being stubborn, okay, for being tenacious, oh, it's a glorious thing when God turns that gift towards himself and you are tenacious for Christ The apostles did not compromise or negotiate. They didn't obey some of the time in some of the places, uh, in homes, but not in the temple for us. School at church, not so much at work. No. Christ was shared all the time in every place. What an encouragement for the Christian. What a call to action that our religion will not and cannot be relegated merely to the privacy of our homes or places of worship. That is not Christianity. Christianity is living for Christ at all times in every place. How do we, how do, we do this? Because our call is to, is to daily pick up our cross and, and follow Christ. We, we do this in the power of the one who in all places, every time, obeyed his Father on our behalf, His righteousness that is imputed, that is given to us as a gift by faith. In the times where we fail and we look inward instead of to Him, placed on Him on the cross, we look to the one who is always faithful. To not do that, to just pick up and, and pick up our cross and, and follow Christ in our own power, that leads to despair. But what we are witnessing here is the fruit of the preparation of being taught by Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is after Acts 2. It's undeniable that these men are completely different than who they were in the Gospels. They're being equipped by Christ, the living word. So are we. And now they are equipping fellow believers through their teaching. And the power given to them by the same Holy Spirit lives in us. Their preparation, their courage, it was not only for this immediate response with the whips and the insults, but it's also for their long-term, dogged, stubborn persistence in obeying God by continuing to teach and preach that the Christ is Jesus. So who's, who's familiar with the honey badger? Anybody? Okay, it... All right, I, I like this animal, okay? He, he, he's small, he, he smells, uh, but he's ferocious, okay? And he's fearless. He's stubborn, he's relentless, and he has extremely thick skin. So much of that is good for Christians. You probably don't need to smell unless it's the offensive smell of Jesus, the aroma of Christ on us. Okay, but to be fearless, okay? This, this animal, just do a, a quick YouTube uh, search, and you'll see multiple examples, including my, my personal favorite that Patrick showed me of this honey badger 
it looks like he's, he's done. His python is all wrapped around him. He's done, except he's not. He somehow gets away from the python, is killing the python as two jackals decide to come up and they want the meal, the python. He chases them off, defeats them, and still gets the python that was trying to get him and kill him. <laughs> honey badger, okay? It, it, the name's a little misleading. It's like honey, kind of sweet, badger, kind of rough. No, this thing's fearless. So you may not remember anything else about the sermon except Art's asking you to be a honey badger for Jesus. Yes, <laughs> yes. We see that these apostles, are, they're fearless and they're relentless like these honey badgers, but they're fearless and they're relentless because they're going after the one who was fearless and relentless in the first place. Nothing but death will stop them from proclaiming Christ, and they don't fear death. Why? Because they know the secret to this life. They know they're already dead in Christ. Their sin has been crucified and killed, died in Christ, so now they live the life they now live is hidden in Christ with God. Colossians 3, 3. So brothers and sisters, let us take encouragement from the response of the apostles. They're not perfect and neither are we. And we may rightly doubt ourselves, but we cannot doubt Jesus. If you, if you think about what we've done, every single time we're looking at the apostles' response, my question to you was, how would we respond? The question we need to be asking is, look at how he responded on our behalf. He will equip us when the time comes. We worship the perfect Savior who went before us in suffering as our example and our sacrifice. He was shamed by sinners and dishonored by scoffers. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's, that's God his Father. Why? Out of his glory, his holiness, and his love for his people. Why? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were all straying sheep but by faith we've been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, 1 Peter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth and wisdom of your word. We thank you that you show us what persecution is and how to respond with joy and obedience to God. Father, we thank you that, that we see that and we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, you died to give us and that Jesus, we're not just following your example, but you lived the life of obedience and then took the full penalty that we deserve for our disobedience onto yourself on the cross. And then we praise you, Father, that you raised Jesus from the dead because death could not hold him and his sacrifice was enough. It was sufficient to purchase a people. We belong to you. Father, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to live in light of the work that Jesus has done. 
in the work that we see and the words that we see in your scripture. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.